Hello and welcome to episode nine of No Blueprint featuring Nicole Robertson. She is the owner and founder of Musqua Productions, but she is also recognized by the Alberta Chamber of Commerce as the Aboriginal Entrepreneur Award of Distinction. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Nicole. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored. First and foremost, I want to thank the creator for this moment in time, for these synergy moments. I also like to pay homage that I'm residing on the Algonquin territory. So shout out to our Algonquin relatives. And I'd also like to thank our audience for tuning in and listening. They're just as important to me as the guest. So uh, thank you to all of our audience that are making this happen. And uh, of course, another big thank you to Nicole for you know being part of this. And if I can indulge a little bit, Honestly, the first time I, I learned about you was just through your incredible like online presence on LinkedIn. And I had to reach out like, who is this? Who's this amazing person posting these like very important posts all the time? I'm like, I got to check her out. And when I started doing some digging, I was just amazed. And so I reached out. And so I'm really thankful that you were able to agree to be here with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I just want to give a shout out to um, the territory on which I reside and work, uh, which is on the Satina Nation um, on Treaty 7 territories, which includes, of course, the Blackfoot Nation mm. and the um, Stony Nation as well. And um, I'm very, very honored uh, to live up upon this land that's just so beautiful and um, majestic and um, I feel really connected to. So thank you for having me on. There's so much that, um, that I look forward to speaking with you. So. Well, let's open up the floor. Let's do it. Well, <laughs> like, before we ding, do, ding. yeah, for real. <laughs> do. let me let me check in with you. Like, how are you doing through these COVID times? Uh, during this time, I would say that in the beginning, it seemed really sort of almost scary. You know, 2020, I had said to myself, you know, there's so many things I want to accomplish because it's, it's a new decade. I put that sort of intentions that um, these were the things I was going to do. And some of them I'm in the midst of doing, but I would say that because of this worldwide pandemic, um, it has changed my life in the fact that one, um, I'm taking care of my mother. She's elderly. And, um, and so um, that's really important. And then, you know, it's just having a work life balance has completely changed. And I know that one of the things that's really helped me is um, physical fitness and getting out on the land and getting much more connected to it, even though I live um, out, um, out by Bread Creek it's pristine land of course there's like bears and cougars and, and wolves and you know things that people would naturally be scared of you just don't think about those things you just continue and get out and and do what you can and so it's helped me to become one much more connected to land base um two to realize um and to be much more involved in reading and writing um you know i am in the midst of writing my own uh, memoirs and looking at ways of trying to get, connect with family, language. My mother speaks fluent Cree, so trying to learn much more Cree, telling her just speak to me in Cree all the time because I, I, you know, I grew up around obviously her speaking, but because my father's non-Indigenous, um, you know, I didn't hear it daily, and so that's one of the things that um, I'm learning is our is is Cree language and it's the TH dialect, which is Northern Cree. I find it fascinating that with all the episodes that we've had on this No Blueprint, there's actually a common pattern that I'm picking up since you've said it, is a lot of us have actually gone out on the land. And that's very, that's a common practice. So I appreciate that you said that. And I think another common trait is we're able to pick up um, other passion projects that maybe we've been thinking of doing. And so we kind of had some time to be able to dust that off and kind of dive deep and then taking care of loved ones. So I think those are like three important highlights about what you shared. I think that's really important. Absolutely. And uh, so tell us, where are you from? Where did you grow up? So I am originally, um, so I, I'm a member of the Matthias Colomb Cree Nation. And that's where my Kukum is from, was from. And I have a family that are from Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan. So that's where my mother grew up. Um, and she's a member of the Peter Ballantyne Cree Nation. 
And so as Cree people, we um, always take the matrilineal uh, ways of being. So um, that's how, of course, our our highways were connected through river systems. And so the Churchill River up north is um, essentially what connects Sandy Bay, Saskatchewan and Manitoba up in northern Manitoba, which is Matthias Colum, which is Puckettawagan. I don't know if you've ever heard the Puckettawagan song, but there's like an actual t-shirt that says um, the University of Puck U. And I've always wanted one of those t-shirts, right? <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I want one of those t-shirts. But anyways, so um, yeah, I'm from there, but I was raised um, in Saskatoon elementary uh, years. And then we moved to Winnipeg for a bit. I was uh, brought up in the North End and uh, went to school, uh, good friends with a lot of wonderful people that came out of the North End, including Adam Beach, um, I would say, during that time, like the whole crew in and around that area, I uh, went on to do really some uh, wonderful things. Um, and there's like, um, yeah, it's just it's such a great, um, you know, people look at, you know, you lived in like really that's like marginalized community. Well, of course, yes, it is. Um, but it really gave me um, one, um, you know, a good sense of understanding how you know our our young people nowadays and i'm not saying i wasn't involved in a gang or anything like that but what i'm saying is is that i could see how people band together in urban situations when they're young and mm. they need that sort of like um you know connectedness and being away from their own uh peoples mm. i think that this is where culture comes so important and understanding um your own self and understanding you know our say spiritual ways to our world indigenous view um that's really helped to empower my story mm. you know it's fascinating about what you said i had no idea that you have history in winnipeg yeah. i'm born and raised there oh um, wow yeah so i'm very familiar <laughs> i wasn't in the north end at all um, yes. my family moved from regina um so that's where my parents met and when they moved to Winnipeg, they wanted to move into like a healthy urban uh, neighborhood to raise their kids. So I actually was born and raised more or less in St. Patel. Oh. But later on in my like early teenage years, my parents split. And so I moved out and I moved out to Broadway in between Spence and Young Street. Oh, wow. Right. And so I have my own kind of story of rock bottom and, you know, interactions with people in the hood and that was a whole other uh, situation. But just to relate to what you're saying, in a sense, like I needed to get away and find a different group to find a sense of belonging, to find friends that I could, you know, make a new family with in a way. And I got to just, you know, trace back a little bit, like both of my parents still love me today very much. You know, they were never unhealthy parents to me at all. They've always showed love and respect. But yeah, it's really cool to relate to you that you got roots in Winnipeg. That's crazy. <laughs> I know I went to St. John's okay. right off of Salter Street and I used to wow. um, cruise all, all over that bridge every day. I was just talking to my daughter, <laughs> actually, who's a teenager now, how I used to cruise to uh, over that bridge to uh, Chicken Delight to go oh, work wow. after school, after my volleyball or basketball practice because I was an athlete to make money so I can buy like Nikes or whatever it was like fashion even back then I was like really into that kind of stuff even back then so um you know I was working and also involved in heavily in in the athletic pursuits and um and that's what really helped me actually to stay away from a lot of craziness that was going on during that time anyways you know it wasn't as how is it how it is now um but uh, I still go back and visit I have family there. Amazing. Tell yeah. us a little bit more about your athlete career. Cause I think, you know, if for those who are looking you up or they know a lot of your track record, your athlete side is hard to come across. Yes. So tell us a little bit more about your athlete career. What kind of sports did you play? So a lot of it was focused on, so track and field, um, uh, you know, short distance running. Um, they used to call me back and this is totally dating myself, the Flojo <laughs> of like St. John's, you know, cause I had such like, um, I was always up against this one girl and, um, it, you know, like I used to, yeah, be able to 
run fast and <laughs> basketball, volleyball, like everything. Mm. And yeah, so nowadays it's like, thank goodness for muscle memory. Right? Mm, when, real talk. When you're like, yes, because you realize you get out of shape because you're not doing certain things that you should be doing. Then you realize once you get going, your body remembers that. And it's, you know, it takes, of course, some work, but um, I'm so happy that I had those, those times of actually being very focused. And I've done yoga throughout the years, like Ashtanga to Bakram to Hatha to even uh, before I had my daughter prenatal and she's now 15. So um, I'm very happy that I've continued with that at, at home during this time. You don't have to go to a gym to do yoga. And it's very, it's a good way of actually uh, centering yourself in a way where you're getting a workout and you're meditating at the same time. So True. I find it very relaxing. True. And so Nicole, you are an entrepreneur, not just by trade, but also you have a family history of entrepreneurs. Your grandfather actually was also an entrepreneur, Angus Bear, and he received the Saskatchewan Order of Merit. So please indulge us a little bit about his story of entrepreneurship. So my Moshom, uh, Angus Bear Sr., like the bear name, that's where I actually named my company Musqua, meaning bear and Cree, uh, because I wanted to pay homage to my uh, Moshom, who um, back in the day in the early like 1920s, 30s, um, had assisted uh, one to be a messenger on snowshoes for like uh, mail and and like messaging like letters and stuff and and so from there he came to work with uh, some people that had come into the north that weren't originally from there um, and helped to guide them in in that area and essentially um, in in that time it was like the north was opening up and so he seen an opportunity because he knew that this was going to continue on where it was just gonna you know more and more people were going to be moving up north so he essentially um, helped to get more of his people which are essentially Sandy Bay, Peter Ballantyne, uh, Cree Nation area which includes like Pelican Arrows and Northern Saskatchewan, Sandy Bay and all that area um, to assist um, with Island Falls and which is now like it's a power dam and that was going ahead regardless um, uh, with the Hudson's Bay Mining and Smelting Company. I look back at that history and I think to myself that my grandfather, my people, um, they should have owned some of that power. They did not have that power for uh, 25 years after that switch was actually turned on. And there was a whole non-Indigenous community that lived just upriver um, that were non-Indigenous that were helping to get that dam running and essentially um, yeah it was just it, to this day that's something that still needs to be sort of reckoned with and um, in a good way like I'm not trying to say that um, there's always positive negatives to everything and I realized in this in this landscape that we're in um, that it's important that we look at the true history of Canada and these are one of those stories where we go okay, you know, even with the Bay, when I know that there's many First Nations that understand, you know, trapping, hunting um, was essentially how the Bay first got their money from pelts, beaver pelts and um, lynx and everything that you can imagine, right? Um, and so our people should have had shares in that company. We, we all should have been essentially shareholders of the Bay and, that was one of our institutions and I look at that and I've done a lot of research on what occurred during that time and it's really it's really mind-boggling how um, our people to this day um, still don't um, there's maybe a handful or maybe a little bit more than that that are actually shareholders of of actual bigger companies you know Mm. I think that we need to move in and look at ways of I'm not saying like full-on pure capitalist what i'm saying is is that <sighs> this wealth could be redistributed to areas that we need money in for say uh, much more preventive prevention for missing and murdered indigenous women 
um, for um, looking at housing, looking at roots of poverty, and how do we bring our people up to a standard of living where they're not suffering and our children aren't suffering. And, and that's really at the very you know, root of things, um, trying to eradicate poverty. I really strongly believe that economic development can be a form of how Indigenous people achieve self-determination. I think the more that we are um, in all facets of society, the more that we can determine what our communities look like. And especially if we're owning businesses, I think that provides us an economic opportunity of finances to be able to invest into infrastructure, which is a huge budget number when it comes to our First Nation community. So I'm, I totally agree with you when it comes to economic development, investing into businesses, owning things. I think that's a way that Indigenous people can achieve self-determination. And so I wanted to know, just continue to, to trace a little bit back in your history um, when did you start learning about your identity and who you are as a human being? Because you're so well-versed in your history. So I'm curious to know. So I would say from the time I could actually um, talk or listen, <laughs> I just remember my parents always saying, and this was a great thing about being, um, and I don't consider myself, you know, um, in the... <laughs> When I was growing up, essentially, I knew that I was what they would call a half breed, right? And right now, that term is like completely like, you know, politically wrong. But I, at that time, knew my, my dad, who's non-Indigenous, said, don't ever deny your ancestry. You should be proud of being Cree, uh, you know, back then. And it was like Native um, and Scottish. There's so many, um, you know, same sort of um, you know, understanding and, and so, and my mom too, as well, you know, and I knew that they being in an interracial marriage, um, cause they were married for over 30 years, um, got married very young and they got married, I believe in 19, like, I don't know, 69 or something. So during that time, it was really not a cool thing. Right. So they ran into a lot of, um, issues and so that was embedded in them when they had their children and essentially wow. said you know what you need to overcome this you're going to actually go against the grain there's going to be some issues that might come up but this is how you deal with them and I always knew it as a young kid because I was always out of the I'm the youngest of three girls um, that I was always the darkest you know and I always I used to get called everything like I don't know, I don't even want to go down that, that road, but um, I always knew that, you know, that I wasn't, that there, I was different, obviously, and that I was First Nation, but Native, and, and my mom speaking Cree, like, I always knew that was just a part of it, and then, of course, um, my mom and how she is, you know, my aunts would come over, people would visit, there would always be gifting, and so that's one of the things that uh, for me is really important when people come and visit if they know me that I you know give things away because that's one of our ways of being is that you know if someone's come all the way from wherever they've come from to come visit you you give them something in return and so it's that idea of not being so tied to material things you know and some of the awesome like fashionable things I always go look back I'm like where's that going? That's right. I gave that away. I'm like, oh, it's okay. I like, you know, it's like, you know, things come and go all the time. People don't. And so right. you have to treat them with like love, mm. gratitude, respect, all those things. Things come and go all the time, but people don't. Yeah. Whoa. I like that. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and speaking of people, is there anybody in your early childhood, um, friends of yours, that influenced your career earlier on? Is there any childhood friends that have influenced your career? I would say absolutely. Um, there's been some, um, I would say more into my, my teen years. I have to give a big shout out to Betty and Adam at the Star Phoenix. Um, she and a couple of other Indigenous uh, reporters had put uh, together a Native um, we weekend or native journalism weekend for uh, students that were in high school 
And so we got to stay in dorms and we went to CTV Saskatoon and um, CGS, I forget, the radio station and also the Star Phoenix. And essentially we spent three days together and, you know, it was such a sort of life-changing event because I realized, and it's funny, years later on where I was having a press conference and I ran into her because she was still working with the Star Phoenix and she's such a beautiful lady. Um, you know, she's attended to actually do the story, write the story. And here we are, you know, as women now. And she's like, I'm so proud to see you. you're still in this area. And that was one really heartwarming um, you know, story to, to share. The other one, of course, um, is that I grew up um, with the late Neil Stonechild. He was a, a family friend. My parents were um, friends with his parents, really close friends. Um, and it was such a, such a really tragic loss during a time when I was about 14. And I knew back then, cause I'd heard through his family and his mom, who was such a really good mom and still is, is a wonderful lady um, that, you know, something had happened. They already knew at that time that it wasn't what it was, what they were being told what it was. And so, of course, it turned out to be that um, that he was with the police that night. And and it really made me realize that, you know, this whole thing around police brutality, I knew at 14, I had that lived experience that there's a two-tier system in the justice system in Canada. And how am I going to change this? What am I going to do so that this doesn't happen again? That I'm not, you know, uh, fearful or, you know, other of my friends don't go missing like this. And, you know, how can I make that change to make a difference? And so that, yeah. Making completely. a change to make a difference, I think, is a great transition here because early in your career, you were also a liaison between CTV, which was founded in 1961, and APTN, which launched in 1992. But then that was just for Northern communities and then later received um, in 1999, a national broadcasting license. And then APTN became the world's first indigenous national broadcaster. And you actually liaison between CTV and APTN. So I wanted to know, what did you learn from that experience uh, about the narrative between mainstream media and indigenous media? First of all, big props to you for doing your research. I absolutely am shocked because I'm not saying not everyone doesn't do the research, but nowadays it just seems like it's like real sort of, yeah, you've done your research. So I hi, hi to you. Um, yeah, no, I have a lot of respect. So that's, yeah, no, I had learned number one, I'd come face to face with one of my role models, which is Lloyd Robertson. Right. And we share the last same last name. So working out of a national newsroom um, in Toronto was completely, um, people work their whole lives to get to that A market um, in television when they're trying to, you know, get to a place of, you know, working nationally. And so for me, it was such a dream to be um, working at, I think I was what, 25 at that time, I believe, or 20, 26. Um, and so it was such a dream at that time because I learned that during, during that time that there was so much technology that I didn't know about. Say for instance, they had a, a system called Gateway, which is um, a fiber optic, um, you know, uh, full on just dedicated for television news that you could get your stories sent. And so APTN um, at that time had that distinct, um, you know, relationship with them so that I would be sending, you know, uh, B-roll, which is uh, of course vi visuals um, to Winnipeg. And, and so I learned those technical things. And then of course I learned the humility even with Lloyd Robertson, he'd come in every day and say, Hey boss, what's on for today? And it was a woman that was younger and she was the executive producer. Now she's running the whole news team there, uh, Wendy Freeman. And I have lots of respect for her as well. Um, and so, you know, these people that helped to shape, you know, some of you know, who I am today, I just think it's absolutely amazing to see how a national news 
comes together from a mainstream perspective, but also an indigenous news perspective. And it was so cool back then to be a part of the very first sort of group of um, young indigenous journalists that were working to make a national news um, team work. And it was, it was a good time. You make it sound so bittersweet, Nicole. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure there was some challenges between those two narratives. Did you yes. did you come across any any friction between those two narratives, mainstream and indigenous media? I would say that absolutely when I worked in mainstream, you know, I uh, was felt like a saleswoman. Um, and not specifically now talking about CTV, but talking about some other mainstream news that I worked in, in newsrooms and, you know, was always pitching the idea of, well, why don't we do this story, you know, in our community about, you know, First Nations, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd be told, well, why would Canadians want to know about this? How does it concern them? Like, really? You know, and I had a news director at one time even tell me, I know your people. I've been to a powwow. I, I, I completely get it. And I'm looking at him thinking, no, you don't actually. And so I've had, you know, some times where I've literally had to um, not get completely angry and like mm. yell and stuff because there was, there was, yeah, very high stressful moments. And, you know, other times where I realized right down to the second, like stressful moments of getting your news, because um, you started in the morning with a 8 a.m. you know news meeting pitching ideas if they don't take your ideas it's like here's your story you're doing this wow. you go out with a camera person you're out you're back you're cutting your story voiceover getting it 90 seconds they call it a buck and a half then it's like on a master thing master control boom it's like it's all happens and then you're done for the day and then it's back to the same thing but the great thing about all that i got to work um i would say uh on a, a show that really helped to teach me um some of the more, much more bigger stories cultural stories that really had an impact on my career um and that was with the sharing circle and i think a lot of people know lisa meaches who yes. now is the executive producer of manitowabi and has um a long list of um, you know, she's, she's done a lot in, in this area of, of production and Big producing time. and other people that I've worked with too, I just want to make a mention, um, too, is, you know, I've worked outside of that in, in film with Tina Keeper and there's a lot of great people actually now I come to think in, in Winnipeg that have yeah. really done a lot. I could see why our national, um, you know, news is, is stationed there with the Aboriginal People's Television Network. You know, it's, it's, there's so many talented people and even now younger people and even people that are entering that have just started this, their careers in journalism and, and are maybe at the height of storytelling. You know, I look at those people and I think this is great that they're continuing on was something that even before my time, you know, I look up to people that had television shows even before I had started in news. And I know that um, it's just, it's, it's endless. And you're doing a wonderful job. Like look at the new platforms we have in podcasting that. And, yeah. and that. So I, I, um, I give, you know, my hat off or my, my feather <laughs> to all you that are doing well and continuing on with, our storytelling and our natural abilities to communicate. Because I always say that, you know, our people are such good, um, you know, good storytellers and humorous too. Like I've been around a lot of people that are really good at, at telling stories. And my late friend uh, who I worked with as his uh, executive assistant in communications and office manager, uh, Jason Goodstriker, you know, I, I had worked with him and, you know, my, my heart goes out to the family, you know, we, they just lost him this past year and he was such a great storyteller and, um, you know, like he, he had so many great things to offer. And I just look at it now and I think to myself, life is really short. You really have to take, um, you know, take it every day 
um, and make the best of it. Some days aren't like completely go, go, go. I think there's a misconception around, you know, that even this during this time of being in COVID, you realize, you know, people have come to this place of, well, who am I without mm -hmm. these titles? You know, it's come down to that simplistic one, one question, right? In the beginning, everyone I think was having sort of a, not everyone, but some people were having this sort of, well, what can I be doing? Like, oh my goodness, I'm not getting in a car and getting downtown and, you know, all these things that sort of um, give people identities mm. and uh, a sense of self, you know? And so we all had to come to this place of calming down and going, what really matters? Mm. I love that. And I think on that note, like the planet needed that. The planet needed to slow down. The planet needed a break. Yes. And that's what's so fascinating. I was at a, the dinner table with my family last weekend, and we were talking a little bit about this, uh, how the planet has recovered during COVID. And we thought it was really interesting that because there's less planes in the air, it's actually harder to determine the weather. So we're just making the connection of how much our mother earth has a chance to breathe. And I think that topic of breathing is so relevant considering our times. And so I think you bringing that up makes so much sense. And, and I think it's important. And your work, you've worked with such so many incredible people. And some of that worked uh, involved uh, a number of chiefs and Chief Teresa Spence, uh, to name one of them during her hunger, hunger strike. And that was during the Idle No More movement back in December 2012. And that work that you did involved bringing a lot of chiefs into parliament to address legislation that impacted Indigenous peoples. So I wanted to know what did um, that, like, how important is it for Indigenous people to be involved in politics? I would say that it is as important as us being storytellers. And it's as important as anything else. It's really high on my radar and the reason being is that you know being there firsthand and how I actually first got started working actually with her was I was working with Chief Wallace Fox of Onion Lake Cree Nation and he was the one that essentially had said you know at the chiefs meeting why are we all sitting here when the future of our uh, future grandchildren are at stake with the omnibus bill that they're about to pass and it's going to really affect lands water and the air we breathe we need to we need to be speaking to the people across in parliament so that's how that happened we all went over there and i essentially uh, was asked you know could you get us in there and i said you know um i'm going to talk to uh, one of our allies and friends uh mp charlie angus right. and charlie um, I said, hey, you know, uh, is it possible that the Chief Fox could have a discussion with the Minister of Natural Resources? Just as simple as that. He's like, hold on. And he took off and he came back and he said, 10 of you. And I told the chief and he picked out his hand and I was the only woman involved in that. And I was very honored because I had my iPad, which I used as a camera. And when we walked in, we were like totally searched, like we were going through an airport situation where we had to take everything off. One of the chiefs who I have a lot of respect for, former Grand Chief Derek Nipanak was saying, you guys roll the red carpet for dignitaries, people that are coming from other countries and yet in our own country, this is how we're treated as, mm. you know, like we're going to do something. He said, you know, this is really disrespectful. And at that time I was told to turn off my camera. So we got in and we went through and we were coming down the hall right towards the press gallery. And for me, that was really exciting because I was thinking, perfect. Like I didn't even need to call no, no you know, news reporters. And here I, I turned my camera back on or my iPad and I was in the procession and late Elmer Crescene and um, Elder um, Nipus, I believe, um, Cecil uh, from Muspachis was at the front and they were holding very sacred things to us, which is the pipe and the wampum belt. Chief Isidore Day was there. 
um, and um, some others that were really important and they were drumming, smudge was going and it was a procession. It was so beautiful. Even thinking about it now just raises the hairs on my arms because I realized at that moment that this was something that was going to occur in a way that was very, um, in my mind, significant. And we stood there and the minister at the time is Joe Oliver came out of parliament. And long story short is that Chief Fox and him ended up, you know, face to face having this discussion and he was telling him, you know, we want to be involved in these discussions. We need to um, ensure that our people have safe drinking water and, um, you know, there's no free prior informed consent. And anyways, long story short is that he said, well, you know, we are, of course, taking your uh, everything you you're saying and I'll let them know and he went to go walk in and I did not know but at, at all at once the chiefs like tried to walk into parliament like literally and the security came and pushed the, the elders and everything like was pushed and all of a sudden it was like I don't know if you've ever been this is now like in a mosh pit but you essentially have to go with the flow so i literally had thought i was going to fall down because wow. everyone went backwards and then forward and at that moment i thought we're getting arrested like seriously i thought at that moment they're gonna like take us up but they just said they didn't even say anything or just it was so much shock i think and one of the chiefs uh madabi patrick madabi said if this is the way you're going to treat us um here you're going to see how you're going to get treated when you come to our lands and territory mm. and that was that we turned around and everyone's seen that on national news and to this day i always say that that was a part of the match right across the board to strike a fire to light a fire that a part of the idle no more movement because that literally showed a lot of indigenous people what canada really thought about um, what was going on with uh, our natural resources, our land, our water. It was a part of a part of that movement. Wow. Yeah. I find it so incredible that you were part of that moment in time, that that moment, that quiet before the storm of I don't know more and all all of your involvement with with the chiefs and your support and with uh, Chief Teresa Spence and I think that since then, you know, as times have changed, as we've evolved as people, as legislation has been amended, I find it incredible to see this, this, uh, you know, present generation and millennial generation really taking that history forward. And I take pride in that. I take pride in looking at my indigenous history, um, learning from incredible people like yourself, the work that they've done, and how can I be a catalyst to bring that forward? So I find that so incredible. And I, I really hope listeners really took that story in because that's an incredible moment in time. And I think that that whole picture you painted of us just being shoved out of parliament is still relevant in a certain way today. So I think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But I think it's fair to say that Nicole Robertson has been part of the resurgence since you started your work. And that resurgence of our Indigenous people rising and thriving and, and uh, taking strong um, positions of leadership is so important. So speaking of leadership, what does leadership mean to you, Nicole? You know, leadership to me means looking at how this is going to impact the next generation um, and not just the next generation, but of course, the next seven generations looking at how um, to share um, space, um, meaning, you know, uh, platforms that exist um, and helping to um, also um, make changes where you can, you know, be that person that says enough is enough um, when you see something that's happening in front of you. Um, and not even just in front of you, because nowadays, you know, it's, it is, you, you just can't be out in the world as we used to at this point, but um, looking at ways of trying to be 
respectful in your dialogue, understanding what comes out of your mouth and what you're keyboarding um, out into the social media world, that you really read it a second time, that you take an opportunity to really understand the impacts of how you throw a rock into the water and the ripple effects that it's going to have. So understanding that and being able to really look at, you know, um, do I want to um, help to elevate and um, support, mm -hmm. encourage, or do I want to, you know, you have to really be much more, for me anyways, as a leader, uh, thoughtful um, in, in your speaking and even in your thoughts we're told that from our elders you know before it even becomes a, a word or language um to, to to know and to understand that um it's really important that you check yourself before you wreck yourself i'm kidding no <laughs> <laughs> i'm kidding i'm kidding nice. sorry no, no, it makes sense. <laughs> okay i got a serious i got a serious question for you nicole okay did your mother put spinach in your bannock when you were a young girl? And I say that because the strength that you have as a woman, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, to speak out against um, a, an, an upcoming prime um, president of the United States of America and call him out on his racist comments against a U.S. senator calling her Pocahontas. Where do you get that strength to speak out against racism like that? And what did you learn from that experience? So number one, I'd have to say that the strength um, comes from the creator, um, God, you know, whoever you would call your higher power, but um, I, you know, call him God, creator. Um, there was prayers that morning. I was working with... Um, a family, uh, a nation um, that had invited me down there to work with the Mandan Hidatsa Rikara, so the MHA nation that is at Fort Berthold. And um, they, you know, we had said some prayers because he essentially didn't want to meet with any of the tribal leaders out of all the um, presidential um, candidates. So um, they had met with Hillary Clinton, they had met with Bernie Sanders, um, and he was right in their backyard for a big oil and gas uh, conference, and he essentially um, didn't. And so uh, I was asked to ask a question at the press conference, because I was registered media, uh, whether or not if he was um, elected that he would recognize and implement the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And of course, at the press conferences in the US, um, you actually literally have to put your hand up and like, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, you know, like you have to do that. And in Canada, you know, of course, you just yell out your question. And so he had already did the one two and seen that, you know, I was sitting there along with a very beautiful young looking indigenous woman that was uh, helping me during that time. And so we were sitting there. And so, you know, three questions and he allowed me to ask my question. He essentially looked and said, oh yes, I heard about that. We'll look into it. And I knew that he didn't actually want either listen or he didn't know what the hell I was talking about. So maybe two minutes go by, someone had said, you know, <clears throat> Senator Warren, and he had cut them off, of course, as he's famously known for, you know, just like not even allowing someone to finish their, their own thoughts. And he um, had said, oh, Pocahontas. And in my mind, I was thinking, are you kidding me? Like, you know what I mean? Like, you just, you don't even think you're just in the moment going, you know, excuse me. I don't even know if I put my hand up. I just said, I find that highly offensive. And and I realized I said it out loud, loud enough, because I was only three, you know, just really close. Um, and he looked over and I said, oh, you know, I'm sorry. I was thinking I interrupted this whole scenario. And he looked down at me, he goes, oh, he goes, I'm sorry. 
And then he went on and he said, I could be Native American, look at me. And he literally had grabbed his face and put his cheekbones up like this. And I'm I couldn't joking. believe he doubled down on the whole thing. And it was to me, like, I thought this guy's like crazy, you know? And I thought, oh, like, what if he becomes, anyways, you know, the rest, he, he obviously became the leader of that nation. And, and um, yeah, I had a lot of hate. Um, I had to get off Twitter. I had to literally get off Twitter right after that because he had, he had, um, or his people, I don't know if he, but he just essentially had tweeted out to me saying, um, this country wasn't built on um, political correctness, get over yourself. So he had found out that I was, you know, from Canada and, you know, because they had introduced me as a Native American, you know, um, writer. And I was essentially, yeah, we, we don't recognize borders. We have a J treaty, like, you know, yeah. but anyway, so he had tweeted that and all these people like seriously went from, you know, you're a marked Indian to uh, you squaw, who do you think you're, what you're doing, Wagenberg, like they went off and you have to read that in order to delete it. So I was at first deleting, blocking, you know, trying to keep up with it. And it was just, it was out of control because, you know, I was on the Washington Post to the Wall Street Journal, to CNN, MSNBC, um, even Inside Edition had called me to try to get to a television station, but I was already on my way to the airport getting the heck out of America, right? And I was like, yeah, thank goodness. I, when I got home that following day, I was like almost kissing the ground at YYC because I was so, so happy. But anyways, yeah, well, that was quite the experience. How do you manage your emotions? Like, how did you find balance um, and how do you take care of your mental health? I know those, those are three big questions, but how do you endure that type of hate and that those type of comments? Like, what do you do? How did you deal with that? So to be really honest with, within that 24 hours of getting home and, you know, um, doing a couple more interviews with CTV and CBC in, in Canada, I completely had a full on cry, full on. I needed to get all that emotions, you know, anger, sadness, rage, you know, everything that you would feel um, when people are trying to attack you. And then at the same time, um, I thought, you know what, I need to go and release this and went and put a, you know, an offering down, uh, down by the river where close to where I live. Um, and then I had support, of course, from some girlfriends that are really close um, to talk to and and an elder and um i got through that and i think and i look back in time and it's one of my warrior stories i think mm. when sometime in the future if i ever um end up getting um bestowed with a headdress that you know you have to tell your four stories that'll be one of my warrior stories <laughs> but nice. yeah so, so now the mental health is is like i think that you know just extremely important to be talking to your creator every day I think that that's where I get a lot of my balance I know um, that that's where I get a lot of my balance and that um, you know making amends when you can um, forgiving is so important it's tough sometimes when you go through certain things and you feel burned or you feel this and that. But at the end of the day, I think it's about self and taking care of yourself, really coming to terms with looking in the mirror. And, you know, I just shared recently um, healing your trauma is a part of political resistance. Mm. And so that's like huge for me. Nice. Yeah. I love that. Elaborate. What would that look like? Elaborate on that quote. What would that look like to you? So looking at your own, say, family trauma, for instance, some of the stuff that maybe you grew up in that you thought was normal um, isn't, and um, reconciling it, um, having those tough discussions with family members, parents, maybe whoever, um, and trying to move forward from there rather than saying it didn't exist. Right. Yeah, it did exist. And this is how 
um, I want to or I need to talk to you about. And if you can't talk to that person, if they're passed on, um, to to write a letter and to to just move move through it. And there's people that help you know help people to do that. That if you need like help, I I'm not ashamed to say I I seen a therapist earlier on in my life in my 20s that helped me to get through a place of you know being um brought up in a you know situations that weren't completely i would say what mainstream would call like a normal you know household you know in the i was i was you know born in the 70s and in the 80s we still had much um alcoholism ha happening in communities and half families and you know people smoking in vehicles drinking in cars that kind of stuff it was completely what we'd call normal but nowadays you look at you go holy like you just think how did i survive through some of that stuff like no seat belts like full-on like crazy stuff i fell out of a moving vehicle when i was like six like and it wasn't it was only going going 10 kilometers like, it wasn't going but i still like think to myself holy like i miss like with my own daughter like full-on like helicopter she's like settle down you know and it's funny sometimes because i look at it and think to myself yeah there's there's some major major shit that we've all gone through in life and if you can look back and go you know what like i i um helped to make this next generation much more healthier like i didn't grow up in, with powwow uh, as soon as my daughter was born as soon as she could before she can walk I initiated her with my aunt at the Muckleshoot um, Nations uh, Powell and I didn't grow up in Powell but I wanted her to understand the very importance of being interconnected with dancing drumming understanding her indigenous roots so that's, anyways that's inspiring I like <laughs> that's such a beautiful thing and this is what I mean by resurgence is that this time and era, our young people are growing up with powwow ceremony, their language as if it was normal. Yeah. It wasn't like that always. Yeah. And you're reminding me of this moment where I was at a powwow. I was like a children's powwow in an elementary school. And there was this kid, he couldn't have been any older than 10. Like he was definitely younger than 10 years old. And I'm, I'm looking around and there's all these like all, all, all my relations were there, right? It was all, all the whole school showed up and uh, some visitors from outside of the school. And I'm looking around and these kids are in elementary. And I'm like, these kids have the amazing opportunity to grow up with powwow being normal. And I'm like, damn, imagine what their future is going to look like reflecting on this moment here. And then this kid, this young boy came out and he did the opening prayer and he didn't do like a 30 second prayer. This went on for like minutes in his traditional language. And I, my mouth was on the ground. I was like, this is the new normal. Mm -hmm. is, this, is this the era? I couldn't help but recognize that. And I think I have to give thanks to my mother, Cleo Big Eagle for all of the work she did to make sure I was educated and aware of our history and knowing where we come from. And then of course, my own personal um, education journey of, of all that. But, you know, I just think it's so admirable that you're also making sure that your, your young daughter, you know, the rise of the sacred feminine grows up with those teachings because they, they ground us, they connect us with the land. And I think mother earth is, is the best religion. You know, I think love is the best religion in my opinion. Amen to that, because yeah. I absolutely agree with that. I think that it's, it is a beautiful thing to see that, you know, that that is a new normal, because uh, to me, that resurgence um, and what we see that's happening right now, I think that, you know, in the future, they're going to say, oh, that, you know, that really happened or you know uh, we're going to come to a place where hopefully mm. and that's my hope is that we don't see color that we are uh, we've come back to this place of humility and, and understanding that we really are all interconnected exactly. and that um and it's crazy because i'll tell you really quickly um i was involved in this reality television show called guess the relative 
And um, I was brought up so much in my mother's side that my my dad was always sort of like that one white guy that was always with all the Indians, right? And I always say that with joking laughter because he was like from cab driver to like helping to get kids here to there, like full on, like always involved. Really, my dad, I just love him. And I just actually, Father's Day is coming up on mm-hmm. National Indigenous yeah. People's Day this yeah. coming Sunday. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm just... I have a lot of respect for him and I just didn't grow up around a lot of like, you know, understanding my Scottish roots because of course having the last name Robertson is not like a huge um, indigenous name, right? Mm. So what happened was, is I had this opportunity through, um, uh, so Sequin's father, that's my, my daughter's uh, name, it means spring. And in fact, mm. that's a whole other thing of reconnecting and reclaiming yes. what is our language. Yes. Um, and so um, I got connected through a producer who just happened to, and I just really think it was a creator because this is something that is not coincidence, um, wanted to bring somebody to be a part of this international show that was going to be on Sky and their channel four out in London, England, um, three guest relatives from around the world to live with a, a family from the UK, from England. And so I was selected and um, I, I thought it was a scam at first, to be quite honest, because he was asking me my birthday and all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not doing anything until I see like some kind of like, you know, uh, release form because right. I know television, right? So did my homework. They came here, did the backstory, filming me, you know, emceeing National Indigenous Peoples Day to um, in the backyard, uh, practicing powwow with my daughter. She was younger back then to in my kitchen cooking, which I was like laughing because I'm not the best cook, right? <laughs> I was trying to look like I'm making bannock, really sweating. And, bannock like, with that spinach in it, right? <laughs> Yes, throw some some flour on my face and really trying to look oh apart. I'm kidding. Anyways, but what happened was is that I ended up over in in England, and this was one of my fears was getting on a plane and flying for eight hours, nine hours to um, just right off of Turtle Island. And I'd never like done an international flight, so for me that was a huge thing. And anyways, so we got, I got there, I should say, and I moved into this house um, with other people that I didn't know. We all had our own quarters and it was the strangest thing, but it was the funniest thing because in the very first day that I moved there um, into the house, it's like big brother, you're like have a lapel mic and right from the morning to the evening, you're on, you're switched on, right? So you're like, yeah. So anyways, so I had a deja vu, what some people would call a deja vu, that I was the relative. And at the end of the day, there would be like a light on you and they'd ask you, um, so do you think you're the relative and why, you know, after doing all these different things together? And I said, yeah, no, I'm the relative. I know that I'm the relative. And oh, okay, so the days go on and we're doing all these things. And I brought my jingle dress and drum and power music on like a CD back then. And uh, I, I actually put it on and got the producer to blast it really loud. And everyone just like, like even the production people behind the scenes are like, whoa, you know, What's like they hadn't heard palm music. And so it was just absolutely exhilarating to see people's reaction for the first time when they actually heard Powell. Mm. And I was thinking, this is a part of me also like reconciling, you know, like bringing to them, you know, Um, something that was foreign to us, what they brought to us, right? Mm. So it was like, it's sort of like full circle for me in that way. But getting back to the story was, is that at the end of the 10 days of filming and all the different things we did together, first time shooting a gun, I was actually clay pigeons out in pouring rain with some some of the guest relatives and relatives, um, like the family and some of these Englishmen that were in tweed outfits and completely drinking tea, like total stereotype, right? Of like <laughs> what an Englishman would like look like. And they were, they were drinking tea and it was pouring rain. They didn't even have like an umbrella or nothing. And um, it was fun. It was so fun. But at the end of the 10 days, um, I was told to go down downstairs and to open the big living room doors. And if they were there, then, 
you know, congratulations, you're the relative. If not, then thanks for coming out, you know. And I went down, took a deep breath, opened the doors and boom, they were there. Yeah. And I was just like, what? I knew it. And <laughs> I got to meet my, um, so our great grandmothers were sisters and they literally had given me a scroll and show, showed me like how we were related. Wow. And it was just mind blowing right. to actually like get that opportunity. Cause I never, never thought that I'd be related to someone that actually was really, um, you know, like, um, just so embedded in her culture in England, right? And right. it just showed me that we're so interconnected and we're so mm -hmm. like, you just don't even know, really, right. when you yeah. look at it, yeah. like it just shocked me. And so to this wow. day, we keep in touch. Amazing. Yeah, and she's full on redhead and <laughs> oh great God. lady and anyway. Amazing story, amazing. Okay, yeah. I have one more question I'd like okay. to ask you. Okay. And it's because I, I admire your work. I admire the um, doors that you've opened for other Indigenous um, producers, um, people in television, all of the work that you've done and your leadership role. And so I wanted to know what can men do to help women in positions of leadership? Heal. I, and I say that with the greatest of respect, you know, like I'm not saying there's um all indigenous men are not healed i'm not saying that i'm saying that your own healing journey to rise up to warrior up and that means you know looking at those traumas for some you know i know from my era of of men indigenous men you know there's there's been a lot of stumbling blocks that has occurred and I, you know, I think it's harder for some men um, to communicate that and um, to come to this place of, you know, reckoning or coming to this place or, you know, having those discussions, I just know, but I, I was so happy when I'd seen, you know, back before this happened, you know, Native wellness um, for men, like a retreat. And I was like, yes, yes our men need time to get together and to actually have those moments to heal and to look at those things that, well, yeah, this didn't just happen to me, you know, to understand that because women, as women, we get together with aunties, sisters, mm -hmm. you know, we have our co-coms and we all sit down and talk about things and some things that get really crazy and wild as you probably know um <laughs> from having aunties and you know so many aunties yes <laughs> um and it's and it gets it's funny and then other times where it's really like sit down serious like yeah. you need to like this is your role and this is the issue you know and I really it's there's been tough to, discussions you know and I think that for indigenous men I think that once they get over those just like we as women um get to that place of healing and understanding self original self and unlearning certain mm. things that they would be just and i've seen it already like look you know like you know people are much happier when there's all this weight that's lifted off their shoulders and much more functioning and you know helping and I think that our men, um, you know, when, when we, and this is a discussion that was had with some indigenous women, it's like, why is there this many missing murder indigenous women and girls? Like, where's our men? Like what's happened to them? Why aren't they there for us? You know, like, and it's, and we don't, I don't uh, put it on our men. I think that there's an issue obviously with um, the very upstart, and I can go off on the history of what's happened, of why there's there's so many, well beyond what is in these reports, you know. Um, but I would say that our men have always been there, and I say that they are much more being more present in this time that we live in. It's getting better, is what I'm trying to say. 
Mm. And I just um, encourage that. I encourage that our men essentially, um, such as yourself, are helping to have these discussions and making it and keeping it real. Because essentially in each indigenous language there, we all have a name for ourselves that essentially boils down to the real people. Mm. So when we are having these discussions, I always think that it's so important to always keep it real 100% mm. and keep it open and honest. Because if you can't be that, then, you know, for me, it's like, what's the sense? You know, here I am. Love me or leave me. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's real, though. That's keeping it real. But for all the men out there, to anybody, all the men that are listening, heal yourself yes and that's helping our women i think that's incredible nicole thank you for being here thank you for sharing your truth thank you for sharing your stories um i'm so grateful and full of gratitude to be able to share this experience with you so again thank you nicole and uh i'm sure this won't be the last time that we we uh cross paths absolutely thank you so much justin and hi hi I really appreciate your time and you are going to be doing some marvelous things. You have a total absolute knack for this and I, I see it. So hi, hi. Let's work together. Yes. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Nicole. Thank you everyone for, you know, listening and tuning in. I'm very, I'm always, I always think to myself with the audience when I'm listening to interviews that it's like you've taken your time to listen and thank you. Hi, hi. Thank you, Tina Key. Much love. Okay. Take care. See you.